Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the astronomical task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally astronomical three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's not other than the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hi. Hello. The freshly shorn Dalton Hughes. The beard is gone. Yes, that all of his fans loved and adored in that video that we did, and suddenly it is all gone. Yes. It'll it'll come back. Send your cards and letters. The right donation, you could have a sweater knit from that very facial (laughs) hair. Indeed. We should make that a Patreon thing. Yeah, that might actually get us some patrons. Uh, and finally, we have no our comment. novice fan. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, we have our novice fan who has seen little to none of the original <laughs> series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Safried. Hello, Allison. Good evening. Before we get to talking about the book, we do have a Patreon, as you know, though some of you obviously don't. It's HTTPS. <laughs> colon forward slash forward slash patreon.com forward slash dwtargetvc depending on the amount you give per month you will you son of a bitch you will receive a randomly chosen bbc book not a target book you've told us many times we've listened as a gift for supporting us just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air i can see i have a lot of editing to do Give me two seconds. (laughs) Let me wet the whistle. Because I have been lecturing all day. Yeah. My damn students decided that, hey, we don't have to do any of the reading. We'll just let him talk about it. Because he's going to do it anyway. Ha ha! Bastards. All right. They figured you out. We continue that lengthy run of Hartnell stories novelized in the 1980s to discuss William M.'s novelization of his own script for the 18th Doctor Who story, Galaxy 4. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, Galaxy 4, adapted by William Ems from his script that aired from 9-11-65 to 10-2-65, published by Target Books in April 1986. As of this recording in September of 2017, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged BBC audiobook, 141 pages. You heard it right. The first episode of this story aired on 9-11. Yeah, but now we'll, we'll talk about that <clears throat> sort of thing here in a minute. Hmm. Let me give you some background on this one. This is a weird one, and not just because of the story you've just read. Up until 2011, only about six minutes of the story existed. The whole thing was considered lost. And that's because the footage had been loaned to the Doctor Who Appreciation Society president to make a documentary, and he had not returned it. He just held on to it. Then episode three was discovered... And the existing audio recordings were cleaned up enough to make them presentable for commercial release. There weren't even any talistats for this one. Hmm. John Cura said, "Ah, I'm taking the day off. I'm not going to photograph this one. (laughs) Or maybe he just wasn't hired to. All we had were existing publicity shots. That was it. One of which was my very first view of Hartnell as the Doctor when I was a kid. And it was the first time I even knew that there were multiple Doctors. Until that moment, I was like, oh, it's Tom Baker. Ah. No, nope. there's this old man. He's in the middle. That's the doctor. What? Oh. Hmm. And what are these little pudgy things? Those are chumblies. In short, for the longest time, 
The reputation for this story depended solely on fan memory, and then on this novelization, and because of all this, the reputation of this story has not always been the best. That makes it even more surprising when you learn that this, that the very same existing episode, Airlock Episode 3, was the highest rated episode the series had had since the first episode of The Web Planet, and it was the highest that they would have until the last episode of The Three Doctors, which is the 10th anniversary special. Yeah, this was amongst the highest rated stories Doctor Who ever had. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. It was also one of the few episodes of Classic Who that was ranked among the top 15 shows of the week when it aired. It was in the top 15. It got that many ratings. And yet it has this reputation for being one of the worst stories produced. Some of that may come from what the actors themselves have said about it. <laughs> Peter Purvis in particular is a huge critic of this story, feeling that Stephen had been feminized because it was originally written for Ian and Barbara. And a lot of Barbara's lines were given to Stephen. So he feels that the character was feminized. Well, I know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what line... I haven't seen the episode of what lines you might be referring to. I'm wondering if it's that fight between Stephen and Maga. In the book, he manages to overpower her with the help of Vicky. In the episode, he doesn't overpower her. He uh. gets beaten down. And I have to wonder if that was Barbara actually trying to attack Maga in the original script and it didn't go so well. I mean, but then him being mad about having feminized lines just adds another layer to the oh, doesn't it? fuckery of this story in the first place. <laughs> That's actually very Excuse disappointing. Excuse my language. Because... That's fine. Yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing. Maureen O'Brien, Vicky, complains so vociferously about this story that producer John Wiles let her out of her contract early. Wow. Some, really? some even said she was fired without knowing that she was not coming back. Uh, but the biggest problem is Hartnell. Wiles threatened to fire him during the story. He complained so much about it. So what did the two of them complain about? Uh, that's a good question. I honestly don't know. I don't know whether it was the theme because the theme is pretty, you know, paper thin. I mean, Evil can be pretty, and beauty can be evil. It's like, I don't know. Uh, in short, nobody who worked on this story liked it. And that doesn't appear to have been entirely followed of the writer, even though his basic plot is, well, basic. Huh. Uh, William Ems was born in Australia in 1930. He began his career much like Ian and Barbara. He was a school teacher. But by 1963, he was selling... TV scripts to various different shows and good ones too, like Callan and Zed Cars, all these shows that people who know British television from the 60s and 70s would know. This was this is not a lightweight script writer. Um, however, he tried to get another script on Doctor Who all the way up through the 80s, and it didn't work. He was an avid fan of the show. And that's why he gets the Doctor and his companions down so right, except they're the wrong two companions. And that meant extensive and hurried rewrites. That may have been what the leads were upset about. He did try to submit some more scripts, including The Vampire Planet in 1969. They were all rejected. Apart from this novelization, written almost exactly 20 years later, his only contribution to the Hooniverse, if you call it that, <laughs> is the fourth make-your-own-adventure book, you know, one of those choose-your-own-adventure ones, uh -huh. Mission to Venus, written that same year, which featured the sixth Doctor and Perry, and which was a reworking of his unmade second Doctor story, The Ips. 
I have it somewhere, but I don't know where. Uh, he died in 1993 at the age of 63. Let's read the blurb. Isn't it terrible that my first thought is that we're free to run amok on the air because we're not going to be insulting a living person. No, we're not going to be insulting <laughs> a living person at all um, if we decide to insult him because, well, we'll get there. Here's the blurb, and you can pass those around. One of those is the paperback. One of them is the script book because for the longest time that was the only version that was available for beyond the novelization. And this is one of the two hardcovers I have, because the hardcovers are damned hard to find and they're fucking expensive when you find them. Following a skirmish in deep space, two alien spacecraft have crash-landed on a barren planet in Galaxy 4. The Dravins are a race of beautiful females led by the Imperious Maga. The Rills are hideous tusked, monstros tusked monstrosities accompanied by their robotic servants, the Chumblies. <laughs> I know, it doesn't quite work, does it? That was the original name of the story, too, the Chumblies. When the Doctor arrives, he discovers that the planet will explode in two days' time. Actually, that's inaccurate. It's two dawns. It's less than a day. The Dravins desperately ask for his help in escaping the planet and the belligerent Rills. But things are not always as they seem. In fact, they never are. Especially when it comes to uh, this book. I don't know. I want to say in Planet of the Giant Dicks, things were exactly as they seemed in the blurb. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true. There were there was a planet, <laughs> there were giants, and there were dicks. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Dalton, <laughs> I'm going to ask you first, because we rarely lead with you, and I think we really should, in honor of your shorn locks. Oh, okay. So, we now see and hear you as you really are. Yes. Nothing first standing impression. between me and uh, the microphone. Yes. Um, first impressions. I didn't enjoy this one as much as I have others. Okay. Um, I feel like I could have liked it. I feel like I could have liked it more. I feel like there's some of it that is good and some of it that like goes to an interesting place, but then it feels very... Part of it feels like just... It's just a mess. It's mm -hmm. trying to say too much. Okay. I can see that. Allison, first impressions? So I have before me on this smallish notepad about 40 pages of notes, <laughs> most of which are direct quotes. And uh, I uh, am pulling now from my bag some scotch tape and a package of colored tabs with which I was going to cut up said quotes and organize them by themes of gender and mortality and the doctor's feelings about his physical state, etc. And fortunately for everyone, I was not able to do this because I would have had about another eight hours ahead of me. That would have been awesome. I wish you had. Well, oh my God. Life is, as we have read so often in this book, too short. So I have, obviously, yes. many thoughts, which I will try to boil down. But I actually think that level of engaging with it was necessary to come to the, in retrospect, obvious epiphany that I've had about this in the last 45 minutes as I was finishing up. Oh. Okay. Because what I was expecting was something along the lines of the all-female society or female-dominated female, so or female -dominated society trope that we've seen so often in sci-fi that can either be a matriarchal society or a single-sex society, and they're almost always commentaries on gender, and I don't think that's what this is at all. No. 
And I kept trying to wrestle it into that scheme. It doesn't end up doing it. And it, I, I worked really hard to do so, and that was not what was going on. And I think that's why this story has a bad reputation, because everyone assumes it's that, and it's not. It's something quite different. In fact, and I will very briefly apologize to both of you for poisoning the well last time we met. At the very end of that broadcast, I apologize to you in that way that I do when I think a book is going to be really awful and I said, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I need to retract that partially. I'm not going to say why yet. Let's just say this. Um, if, you, if you've been a Doctor Who fan for as long as I have, you get kind of these ingrained feelings about certain things. There are habits you fall into. Yeah. For instance, I still use the word erstwhile incorrectly because... A Doctor Who magazine in the early 80s used it correctly. In fact, you can tell a certain generation of Doctor Who fan because of the way they use the word erstwhile. <laughs> it's because of its misusage in that um, magazine. It was actually a tract by a linguist. This is the sort of tribe I belong to. And that tribe told me, Galaxy 4, bad story. I... The episode or the book or both? Both. And I've only ever read this book once before. And never as carefully as this. And I would I would say that probably no one has read this book as carefully as we have, dear listeners. I don't think anyone will pay this book as much attention as we will in a moment. I think somewhere out there there might be someone who's done a master's thesis on this book. <laughs> I could be wrong. Yeah. We'll have to ask Trey. He'd know. It would definitely bear up under the strain, I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. Where do we start? Oh, God, where do we start? I like throwing that on Dalton again. Dalton, where do we, something clever. Where do we, where do we start? Uh, well, what did you expect? I mean, yeah, like you said, you're expecting kind of this, like, female-dominated race trope, and then it's like, oh, no, this this has that, but it's not really paying attention to that. It's more about, like, beauty and celebrity kind of in a way. Like, Really? Not celebrity, but this idea of, like, the perfect person. Oh, glamour. Glamour. Yeah, I can see. Um, kind of like, I don't know, uh, when you were talking a second ago, it made me kind of think of Gattaca in a way. Yeah. Um, this this idea that the elite are the, the, the perfect people. They are the ones who are chosen to lead because they have the good genes, as okay. it were. Um, yeah. And so, like, seeing that kind of... Yeah. It just... It, <laughs> a lot of feelings, a lot of thoughts, a lot of just breaking my brain, just being like... I don't know how to feel about this because I want to feel a certain way, right. but it's not really about that. It's no. about, yeah. What would you say it is about? In fact, let's talk about the theme of this book, or the themes, plural. What, what would you say this book is, the story is meant to be about? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about the Doctor and his body and um, yeah. feeling the wear of it, wishing to be in a in a younger body next time mm -hmm. you know um it's all it's just about appearances i guess and like how you know don't judge a book by its cover oh my god it is isn't it it's i mean that's that's what the the reels talk about so much they they say it multiple times like people are afraid of us they think we're horrible mean evil creatures because of the way we look but we're really really generous yes. we want to help like right um which i feel like is something that happens so much in the real world people are often discriminated against based mm -hmm. on appearance based on appearance um, 
including yeah. the Doctor in that. Because I was wondering why that was happening so often, and it does kind of work with the general theme. Because the Doctor is not what he appears, he's not even what he appears to himself, he wants to be something quite different. Yeah. Because he's just inhabiting this form for a little yeah. while, it's like driving a car, and it's a beater. Yeah. And he wants a Maserati. Which is funny that that's kind of the deal with this book, because so many people don't like it because of like what it appears to be on the outside. And then once you actually start reading it, it's like, oh, well, they're going for something else here mm-hmm. that I wasn't expecting, you know? Okay. So it's like... I thought it was going to be, um, you know, the old trope of some dude's take on feminism that won't resemble any school of feminism that's ever existed. Which, like I said, normally what you would expect. Yeah. It's kind of matriarchy or single-sex society stories either boil down usually into the modern Star Trek, you know, like the episode of DS9 where all the Cardassian females are scientists, I mean scientists are female, and the Cardassian engineers are sexist towards O'Brien, and, then, and mm-hmm. there's a episode of Next Generation where uh, Riker is on a matriarchal planet on a rescue mission, and those turn into matriarchal scenarios as a way of showing the logic of sexism when you reverse it it's more obvious yeah um how it, it's easier to see the mechanics this was not that and the other kind is sort of the man's idea of what either a paradise or a nightmare a single set for matriarchal society right. will be that usually bears very little resemblance to any kind of human behavior of any <laughs> group of people at all even you know like marston's original concepts of paradise island which is all this weird oh, yeah. concepts of gender and bondage versus like, like the 90s outer limits episode of a single sex society where they reintroduce men and it's all about how women are passive and useless and all men want to do is kill <laughs> they usually end up being actually very misanthropic gender yeah. tropes about how most these sexes are worthless. We should throw them out and start over. <laughs> and this was not that. Uh, first, I was kind of critiquing the idea of, you know, this idea of what <laughs> this feminist society was like. I mean, this is not feminism. This is matriarchy and it's eugenics. Yeah. And it's kind yeah. of, yeah. Um, I thought it's like, it's Lady Migtow. It's uh, oh. Figtow or Wigtow or eugenicist going their own way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and something that doesn't actually exist as a society, but I thought was entertaining because you know, the reason she's evil is because she's a slaver. Right. She's a eugenicist. She is a warmonger. And none of them have to do with stereotypically traits, which I actually thought was kind of refreshing. Yeah. She's not shown as being excessively emotional. Uh, I'm, ta- I'm referring here to MAGA, who has an interesting name in this uh, Trump era. I tried to come up with a really clever acronym, something like... I didn't even think about Make that. Arrogance Great Again, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, and that's why, and that's why I said celebrity. That's why I said oh, celebrity, yeah. because yeah. that's where it ties in. Yeah. It's totally this like idea of like yeah. this, this it is upper though. class of people that are so... Yeah. like. Mm-hmm. She kind of has a celebrity amongst the, the yeah. clones, in a way. I could see that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so then I thought, okay, it's not... Well, and then I kept trying to wrestle uh, Steve's inane remarks and behavior into, is he being criticized, or is he the author's perspective? I'm actually really disappointed to hear some of the actor's comments about this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know he's not the writer of uh, this book, because... Oh, you should hear the writer's comments. You know, his response <laughs> when he sees the first of... Um, I cannot keep this name in my head. The uh, the Dravens. Dravens. The Dravens. Yeah. Um, it's just 
I think the equivalent of hello nurse and a yes. woman is pointing a laser rifle at his face. <laughs> and I thought that was surely meant as a critique of his perspective. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that he sees the Dravans and MAGA well, he sees MAGA in terms of like cold rage and anger in a way that's surprisingly intense and volatile. I think the most yeah. memorably emotional passages from the book come from Stephen's anger. How much he hates her. Yes, yeah. and how much I, I think it's supposed to bother us how much, and he's not quite sure why he hates her yes. that much. He has some ideas, but he's not a reliable narrator there. The doctor there. does that a couple times, too. He's, yes. You can't tell whether he's being misogynist or whether he just yeah. wants to take this arrogant person down. That's a whole other four pages. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. Well, but it's interesting that the thing that most troubles Steve about the Dravans, these enslaved clones, or, or these artificial beings, is he talks about how it seems so strange in such a way that they are women. Why would they, what you would you create women who aren't more? And he talks repeatedly about how they don't provide what he sees as the function of women, which is it's not erotic, it's not service, it's emotional warmth. And I thought that was once again interesting as something, is it the author's perspective or is he sort of indicting Steve's perspective here? But then that wasn't really what it was about either, I thought. So I thought, yeah. okay, it's about the doctor's sense of mortality. Mm-hmm. And there's some really beautiful passages in here, some of which I'd like to oh, yeah. read later, about his contemplations about his physical state and the planet is dying, how he feels that yes. he's dying as well. And his intense disgust for MAGA that does not seem justified by what's on the page. Yeah. Like, he is so vociferous that she is incredibly stupid. And that the rills are incredibly wise based on some really thin and equivocal evidence that we'll look at later. But he is so incredibly offended at her arrogance and talks about literally wanting to take her down a peg or two when over and over our attention is drawn to his arrogance as well. Um, And uh, I think there's some interesting pairings of characters that conflict between the Doctor and Maga versus Steve and Maga and then of course it's the second book to pair up um, Vicky and Steve is sort of sniping oh, yes. <laughs> with another in a way that I, well anyway, uh, that I think works um, this is highlight here um, so this is going to be my grand reveal at the end I think this is a book about Gnosticism Really? Yes. About as in G N O S. Yes. Oh yes, wow. Yes. Okay. Explain this. It's going to take me a while to build my case. Okay. <laughs> and I don't Strap have to do it right now, but I'd like to bring it back to that at the end. Yeah. This is what I don't think. Absolutely. The conclusion that seems obvious in retrospect, but I was desperately trying to cling on these other themes about gender and mortality, which does work into it, okay. and arrogance and interpersonal conflicts, and I think it really all is building to this all plastic right. thing. Let's come back to it, because you're right, that needs unpacking. I, I see where, where you're getting at, but we're going to have to explain it to the listeners. You're not stupid listeners, it's just I want to give you a chance to go off and Google it while we're talking about other things. <laughs> but yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> um, let's try it this way, because I do want to talk about what's good about this book, because Jesus God, I was surprised at what was good. Yeah. In this book. I was expecting this book to just be boring and just a drudge. And Planet and Hunt, episode, yes. Yeah, exactly. And it turns out to be this almost labor of love on William M's part, but I don't know what the labor of love part was about. Dalton, what would you say are some of the things that just 
that you found really good about this book that shocked you that they were this good or, I, or surprised I you? Just, I really liked some of the writing whenever, like, later in the book, the Doctor is talking to the, the Rills. Just some of the philosophy involved about about the aging and about yes. uh, whatever they're kind of just talking about the idea of the passage of time mm-hmm. and they're like we don't understand what you mean but now that we have basically assimilated your language right now we understand that and they kind of explain what their passage of time is and you know yeah um, and none of that is on screen obviously no but i i i really enjoyed those parts where it was just like kind of getting to some of the the, the more uh deep parts of the book yeah and it's incredibly that section and just about every section where you have someone's interior thoughts being presented yeah. is just downright poetic yeah the prose just turns lovely and flowery and uh, there were some things with there was a there was internal thought process of maga and the real toward the end that i did not see coming that i thought were quite interesting yeah especially yeah. magas because mm-hmm. you get to that part and you're thinking he just humanized a character that the entire book has told us has no human warmth or quality yes you almost feel sorry for her when the planet goes boom underneath her. well and i think yeah. shows the doctor and steven to be unreliable narrators about her vicky probably oh. gets her a little more than anyone else does but she's she also put off by them because she could kind of says well these are women and yet not yeah yeah and it's more it's that whole thing again of of do i dislike this person because she's a woman or do do i dislike this person because she's doing bad things yes and it's it's that kind of struggle of like even as a woman vicky's like i don't want to like give into that trope of like not liking the woman because she's being bad but like she's doing bad things so like (laughs) she's uh, straight up evil and it's yeah it's like that's still kind of like conflicted yeah, and Vicky yeah. also has a conflicted reaction to the Rills, too, because she's almost like, oh, I, d- I don't want to do the stereotypical girly thing yeah. and react to the evil, yeah. ugly creatures. Well, and she initially freaks out about it yeah. and like is almost like in the state of shock. Mm-hmm. And then when she finally meets them, she almost doesn't want to leave them. Yeah. She feels kind of comforted that, like, oh, like I feel sorry for you. Like well, she's supposed I- to see the Chumblies with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, but also, like, she feels kind of, like, remorse for judging them wrongly in the first place. Yeah, and it's interesting that that turnaround comes really quickly. Yeah. Um, that in, um, I almost said episode three, because it is episode three. There are only four chapters in this book, and they correspond to the four episodes. And we haven't had that since the Zarbi. Um, I'd um, like to maybe, if I could, read. <laughs> we keep talking about the Doctor's contemplation of his body and mortality. The yeah. first passage on that because there are four or five good ones that we can't yes. do them all but the first one is arguably you know the first sort of poetic passage in the book uh the doctor soon wished he had found a younger body to inhabit uh there was not a lot to be said for this one um in no time all his hearts were hammering his lungs laboring like a pair of ancient bellows and his limbs moved with the greatest of reluctance this was an old body and there was nothing to be done about it and this is a scene where he's running away from yeah. something but it's the first introduction and actually changed my concept of what he is when he regenerates this almost sounds more like he picked a body and moved into it yeah. rather than being new for him so yeah. what's what's the standard reading on that the standard reading on that is that ems has a completely different take on what regeneration and incarnation mm. of bodies is because at the time he wrote this original mm. script none of this was on the cards at all mm. he wouldn't have known about it 
But Ems, obviously, since he tried to submit scripts afterwards, mm -hmm. knew about the concept of regeneration and tried to include it. Um, personally, I find that take really refreshing. It's non-canonical in the worst possible way. No one would ever say, oh yeah, the Doctor has had bodies before this, except... Yeah, I'm sorry, listeners, I'm going to bring this up. Even though it's several years in the future, the Tom Baker story, Brain to Morbius, kind of blows that out of the water when he is doing wrestling, mental wrestling, with another Time Lord. It, it's a long story. And the, their faces of their previous incarnations keep coming up. And Baker is the fourth. We go back through Pertwee, then we get Troughton, then we get Hartnell, and then suddenly we get more faces. And Morbius says, how long, Doctor? How long have you lived? And it's accepted, it was accepted by the production team at the time that the, the Tom Baker Doctor is not the fourth, hmm. that there had been previous ones. Ah. That's been negated by other canonical things, but it's interesting that he's taking that take of, oh, the Doctor just decided to inhabit this body this time. Maybe there have been others that he was more happy with. Yeah. And he's going to go with a new model next time. So, yeah, it's non-canonical. Some would even say wrong. I love it. I kind of wish yeah. it were like that all the time, yeah. but it's not. Well, like it kind it. of mirrors the idea that the Doctor doesn't understand the TARDIS either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> yes, just yeah. throughout the stories, the Doctor doesn't yeah. quite understand how to work the TARDIS. The Doctor quite doesn't understand how to regenerate into a body that he likes. Right. He doesn't get to choose it. It just, it happens. It's like, oh, okay, you know, mm -hmm. I want to be a ginger. Uh, a ginger. Well, well, it's kind of weird because um, before y'all came over, I was, you know, getting set up in my brand new apartment. That's why you can hear new echoes in this room. And uh, I was listening to an audio drama uh, adaptation of one of the missing adventures from the 90s. And it's one that has the fifth doctor and the seventh doctor working together. And it uses the um, Virgin New Adventures can canonical view of the doctor's origins. The Time Lords aren't born, they're loomed. They're loomed as adults, mm. and no one actually has fathers and mothers. They have cousins because they're all related. Okay. And it struck me as so weird listening to that story again after I'm hearing that again after all this time and thinking Ems was looking at this with the same sort of weird. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was. It's a radical departure from what we get later, and what was available at the time, and it happens so often in this book. Yeah. Well, I had, I, had, I had wondered about that, because I, I couldn't remember in any of the stories that we've read, have they talked about the Doctor regenerating? This is like the first appearance of it, right? Yeah. It, it's the first time we ever hear about other incarnations if we're reading these in story order. And does it appear in the episode no. at all? So this is at all, all like kind of retconning. Yeah, this is all retconning because the original televised story really is paper thin. Okay. Anyone reading this, with even like the barest knowledge of the concept of Doctor Who, is going to be familiar with that. I mean, it's not a particularly yeah. daring thing to put it in a book that comes out in the eighties. It isn't, but <laughs> I was going to say, but it fits into the theme of the book. Yeah, it totally like yeah. feeds into this idea yeah. of 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 the the Dravins. which I had not realized until you brought it up, Dalton. Because you're absolutely right. This is something that it seems like. 
Ams is specifically hammering so that he can bring more to that theme than what was originally there. Because that, and it just makes the Doctor far more interesting. Yeah. This is probably one of the best takes on the Doctor of the first Doctor that I've had, I've seen since uh, Ian Martyr's take. Yeah. Yeah, Ian Martyr's take is pretty radical too, but it's radical in a different way. It's very much a time lord. It's very much non-human. It's very much, God, these humans are so weird. And so yeah. it's radical in its own way. But this one, yeah. I feel like the books that we read with Barbara and Ian, whether it was Susan or Vicky, Ian was always the point of view character, yeah. Um, yeah. because it was he was the easiest for the author to relate to, and it worked very well. I mean, like I said, you know, you don't relate to Batman, you don't relate to the Doctor generally. Right. Uh, and then I think that is switched a bit. I don't think any ill will was ever meant towards Barbara. It's just none of the authors seem to either try to or be able to imagine what the story might be like more from her perspective, if that makes sense. That's true. But could imagine it more, I think, from Vicky's perspective as a teenager. So I think the last book we had a little bit maybe more of Vicky's perspective rather than Stephen. And I was about so, to say, that's, that's down to okay. Nigel Robinson. Okay. Because he yeah. also, you haven't read Edge of Destruction, he also gets Barbara really well. Yeah, like from the jump. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he does it quite well. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. This is the first one where I feel like we're from the Doctor's perspective. Mm -hmm. And Stephen, I think, is a foil throughout a lot of the book, and we're not sure if he, or well, I wasn't sure if he was being shown as just sort of a misogynist from, uh, because the author is, yeah. <laughs> or the author's critiquing his view, but the Doctor <laughs> wants Stephen's body throughout the book. <laughs> no, but not like in a predatory way, but he, he's he in the, he that he's like young that. and agile, and uh, that he doesn't have that. Yes. Um, and at the end, I think the Doctor really rejects that. Yeah. And that's not Stephen's perspective, that's the Doctor's perspective, because Stephen never gets it in no. this book, never gets that sense of mortality. No, he really doesn't. In fact, I was just thinking about that weird, I was thinking, well, at first I read what you said is homoeroticism, and I thought, oh, there's no homoeroticism in this, until I remembered that scene in the pit, which yeah. doesn't <laughs> happen on screen, where they're face-to-face, -face yeah. and the Doctor says, I'm not happy about this. <laughs> like, that... That's not only a line I could see Hartnell saying, it's also one that Hartnell would never say, the Hartnell Doctor on screen. That scene never happens, and yet it's hilarious, and it shows something of their relationship, and it's almost like a Cassidy and the Sundance Kid type yeah. of deal, but it also brings up a huge plot hole, which I need to address at some point. Oh, go ahead. Why are the Chumblies trying to blow them up? Why are the Chumblies trying to trap them? What's the point of that when we find out that the Rills are a peace-loving race and are trying to help? I thought it was that the Chumblies are trying to help them, but they haven't yet figured out how to communicate with them. That because might be it. Yeah. It's when Vicky's with the Rills that they are they uh, figure out what speed she can listen to. Yeah. And talk about this. Also, Slow down. She's like, basically something like, I don't listen that slowly, I don't listen that fast. Yes. Oh, that's in the middle now, I can understand. But I think they were trying to communicate, and then they also had the mesh that was um, oh, yeah. that was uh, suppressing their abilities yeah. to speak. That's and I feel like the trap was probably for the the Dramans, and yeah. not necessarily for the Doctor and Ian. I hadn't thought about that. It probably could be. Um, because they are trying to help the Dramans, and they're trying right. to just trap them and get them down there um, so they can get the bitches on board. 
talking talking about the the foil of of the doctor and uh steven um to made me realize this kind of idea of uh intellectualism versus anti-intellectualism um that the vrills are very smart they're very slow and they think about things and they observe and they take in and the doctor tells Vicky at one point, you know, collate, correlate, you know, tells her whatever to do to problem solve. I love that scene. Um, and then you have the Dravins that are people that are very much just like, whatever comes to mind is what they're going to do. They're very reactionary. They're very much like just, you know, uh, do this and ask questions later. Yes. And so I feel like that is another kind of theme that's brought up that that's kind of my, my frustration is that like, there's so much that's happening. Mm-hmm. There's so many isms that are trying to be attacked and like explored <laughs> that it, it just kind of gets like weighed down. If that's yeah. indeed what he's doing, and it's hard to, it's really hard to say that that is what he's doing. Right. It's like the intent is questionable. Yeah, I I actually downloaded a um, a panel that was conducted with M's and the producer and Donald Cotton, who we're getting to next time. We love Donald Cotton. And now I know why we love Donald Cotton, because he's one of these booze-drinking, smoking British people who talk so uh, urbanely, and it's like, of course you do, dear boy, of course. But M's in that interview, he he was asked by a fan, are you going to expand on the story or change any of it? And he said, no, I I think the story, there are going to be additions, but I don't think it needs to be changed in any way to serve any particular community and there may be some and you and you know what's coming i don't think we need to you know kowtow to any you know sort of feminist backlash or what have you it was okay something so we like did that. comment on that he right. did comment on that i was like oh so he's gonna make it his magnum opus on the nature yes. of the spiritual and the material realm immortality so. and gender it was, so weird. <laughs> it was so weird to yeah. hear him say that especially since i've come around to loving this book in some ways and then hearing him say that i was like oh all right 20 demerits for house gryffindor <laughs> right so for those who are listening to this and haven't read this, haven't seen the episodes, uh, because that's difficult, and I have no idea what the hell uh, we're talking about, <laughs> but the planet that they are all on is going to explode. Yes. And at first they think it's going to be 14 dawns, which they take us two weeks, and they figure out it's going to be two dawns, which is actually less than two days. Mm-hmm. So this is a central metaphor that he works with. I didn't do another extended reading here. This is the beginning of the second chapter. Yeah, yeah. The sun spun leisurely through the space above the planet. Thus it always had been, and thus it all would always stay, an observer would have thought. But when the planet went, they too would go. First it would come to a throbbing pulsation through the emptiness as the planet began to expand outward, its surface beginning to split asunder and lava to spit and pour outward. Then an unholy white light would dance his way and that, that would dance this way and that across the surface, and the last moment would come. The planet and its suns would go nova, a brief spot of light in eternal space and of no consequence in time. From then on, they would be of no consequence in space either, more, mere boulders rolling their way through eternity. And then the doctor feels badly that Stephen's long for this because he didn't sign up for you know, exploding planets and yeah. the white light. Um, Human life wasn't long enough, he thought, no sooner given than taken away, with insufficient time to learn what was necessary to do what had to be done. He dismissed the thought. 
There was nothing he could do about it. He wasn't God, simply something of a clown in his own eyes, trolling about through time and space, seeking the final truth as he inhabited one body after another, and yet with the dull feeling that that final truth would remain forever beyond his reach. That wouldn't do. We have to worry about Vicky, he said quietly. And the, the, the segues back into the story. Yeah. Like I said, there are about four more passages in the book like that, talking about the planet exploding and him thinking about the end of his own life. But we as, you know, readers in the 80s and after knew that it's not going to be the end of his life in the traditional right. sense. It will be a new one. He wonders what that might be like. Yeah, and there's particular beauty to those passages that you don't tend to get in these novelizations very often. Well, it's not like the Crusades, where it's dense like that all the way through. It really actually has a nice rhythm of pretty sparse prose, and then you sort of dive under for these passages yes. of interior thought life of the characters. Other than, uh, Stephen and Vicky don't really have that much interior life in this They one. have more than usual. More than usual, <laughs> yes. But compared to the doctors, and then later the Rill, um, mm -hmm. it's really, um, it really is significantly more philosophical in a way that, it, yes, I know it's kind of over the top and self-indulgent, but I think actually works very well. <laughs> I also love M's sense of humor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's very funny lines. There are very funny, there are more funny lines in the printed version than there are on, on screen. I mean, I'm thinking about that, that brilliant moment when um, the doctor says that she needs to note, observe, collate, and conclude. And <laughs> yeah. she says, well, I, 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 it wasn't a chance I noted, observed, collated, and included. included. <laughs> then I threw the rock. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a brilliant moment. But there's also probably my favorite moment ever of a first doctor uh, book in which the bomb goes off. It does happen on screen, which is why I was like, why are they trying to blow up the damn TARDIS? Stephen sees the doctor laying flat on his back and says, Doctor, are you all right? And he says, Oh, yes, I just love games like this. <laughs> I'm like, that is brilliant. I love that. And the doctor gets some of those even when he's talking about his body. I'm, I've never measured this body. It's enough that I inhabit it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of... He would use his own advanced technique to stop the thing. That is to say, he would pull out everything with inside until his aim was achieved. Right. I, I enjoy the scene where he's uh, trying to disable the, the ammonia filter, and he's just like, <laughs> just taking out circuits one by one, <laughs> neatly stacking them on top of each other, just like, nope, that one's not doing it. Okay, let's try this one. Nope, that one didn't do it. Alright, let's try this one. Nope. And then he gets down to the very last one. Yes. And, it's like, and ah. luckily Vicky stops him. Yeah. And it, it's weird that he also gets some lines, and this is going back to M's strange but also mm -hmm. novel characterization of the Doctor, in which he says, I, I'm, I don't kill. We don't kill. Yeah. But then that's the line on screen. But then he, I thought he was explicitly lying. No. Well. <sighs> well, he, he, he's... It's in a passage where he's saying, I'm going to make something up and tell it to them. And that's part of what he tells them. Well, he's telling the Dravins that he's not going to kill the Rills. Yes. And he's yeah. also giving them the wrong timeline. He's saying 14 suns. Yeah. When he, knows when he knows it's not There's true. that. But I think it's more that... Um, so I didn't know if he was in earnest when he said that they didn't kill. Because no, I think he, the Doctor honestly at this point believes that he's not a killer. Even though we yeah. know if it's a Dalek, he's going to kill it. Um, but then he goes on to say, I'm not permitted to even if I wanted to, which I don't. I'm not permitted I to. thought it was interesting, yeah. Yeah, as if... But I took it as part of the falsehood. Right. 
Right, and it seems to be a reference to the Time Lords. In fact, at the, towards the very end of the book, when he's talking to the Rills, he says something along the lines of, and let me see if I can find it real quick. God, there's so much to discuss in this. Well, we're going with good quotes right here. Are you yeah, looking he, he says something along the lines of, I once knew a people who arranged to have a long a lifespan for themselves, and they became deeply cynical and joyless. And it's like, oh my god, he's talking about the Time Lords. It's like, oh, mm. that's nice. That's mm -hmm. nice. It's not on screen, obviously. Yeah. That whole conversation isn't, but it's really nicely done. Yeah. Oh, I've got a quote here from Stephen thinking about the Doctor. He says, It was all very uh, all very strange and all very well for the Doctor. He was used to whistling about through space and the like. Uh, he was used to uh, whistling about through space like a demented flea and encountering weird <laughs> life forms. <laughs> yes. And then Vicky contemplates distracting um, the, the Chumblies. Uh, should she do a soft shoe shuffle and hope for the best, or perhaps give them a quick burst of Shakespeare's oratory? And then uh, Maga thinking about... Uh, killing Stephen because she thinks about it a lot and it always makes her very happy. <laughs> I actually like that she's not like attracted to him or obsessed with him. She's yeah. just bored. She doesn't yeah. like him. Like, oh, he'll do for entertainment. Yeah, exactly. Killing him, though. I'll be um, happy to see him go. She left him three options. He could die in the airlock, come in or die at her hands, or go out and be killed by the machine. This promised to be a fun day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's even given more personality than she has on the screen. Yeah. And there's one other thing. The Doctor's reaction to what Vicky says about there being maybe some good people on Earth. And he, he, he's both deeply caring and extremely worried that she's going to be that cynical when she's that young. Yeah. And he says that she, he needs to have a talking, she needs to have a talking to. And it's actually quite sweet. But it's mm -hmm. not on the screen. Everything that Ems has added here is really strong hmm. that being said what did we not like Dalton um, I just remember reading the word chumbly for the first time <laughs> and being like really Th yeah. this is this is what we're gonna call these things for this whole book but he did give an explanation that that's what Vicky said the noise sounded like. Still, like, well, though. That's a... Still though, I was just I was just annoyed by that. But he I was, was like... appropriately embarrassed. <laughs> Give over the backstory. But, but it's like that Mean Girls scene, right? It's like stop trying to make Chumbly a thing. Right, it's not a thing. <laughs> also, just like the Galaxy Four, like you couldn't think of a name of the galaxy. You just had to number it. Galaxy like... Four. What's wrong with Galaxy Four? It just seems lazy to me. Well, so is Chumbly's. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're both just really bad titles, if you think about it's like, but why? Because, like, there's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of, like, amazingly deep things happening in this book. And it's like, oh, and then I have Chumbly's to go along with it. <laughs> yes, which you get again. I did not order the side of Chumbly's. Send it back. In yeah. fact, you notice in my notes, I, I refer to the machines. It's because the, the um, I always dictate my notes to my phone. It would not render Chumbly's. The no. same way twice. So I was like, you know, fuck it. I don't like this yeah. name for them anyway. They're kind of cute on screen until you realize that they were realized by having really, really, really small people, actors. One who had this wonderful name of Pepe Poo Poo or something like that. Oh and, you know, little people. You know, Grant, 
crammed into these things that look like miniature Daleks. Mm. And it's like, oh, okay, some somehow yeah. that's not as charming anymore. Yeah. No. Do they all make it out alive? Let's hope so. <laughs> well, no one ever makes it out alive, you know that. Speaking of deeply cynical enjoyment. Wow. Right. Wow. Can't tell um, that I just moved. All right. People now tell us about all the previously unreported deaths on the set of the cast and crew <laughs> over the last few decades. Well, certain, several careers died, apparently. <laughs> I mean, God. What do we not like about the book? So, the Doctor is almost immediately going on and on and on about how stupid Maga is. And if you were looking at the hat, I would be with him. But he's also going on and on about how smart the real must be a long time before he meets them. Mm -hmm. And um, for Maga, he, he, he's saying that her, basically her conclusions are shallow, that her technology's not very good. Right. That they keep firing on the Chumblies and to quote, drive them away, but it's obviously yeah. not actually hurting the Chumblies, actually might be powering them up. Mm -hmm. um, by firing lasers on them. And he said, oh, you know, whoever created these robots must be very clever and very intelligent. But, you know, Maga did shut, shoot down their uh, ship, and her species did create an artificial race of slave humans. So that's really not a bad day. No. But he says over and over again how incredibly stupid and dense her civilization must be yes. in a way that where he, too, is clearly almost as angry as Stephen is. Mm -hmm. And I thought that this was showing him, in terms of the overall dichotomy, being on, succumbing to Stephen's way of seeing things very shallowly, in right. a very short-sighted way. Right. But then the real echoed this at the end of the book. Yeah. yeah. I always took it as more of, like, the Time Lords are an older species. They're an older race. They've been around a while. They've kind of like the Rills. They are these this culture that is more advanced. So they mm -hmm. see the Dravans as primitive. Yeah. But he doesn't distinguish at all between Maga and the Dravans. At least in the language used in the book, I don't think she's ever called a Dravan. I think only the artificial women, the no, artificial the, soldiers are called they're the They're all from Dravan. Okay, okay. Yeah, they're they're all like Dravan 1, Dravan 2, Dravan 3, and no one has a drop of sympathy for them to be being an artificial slave race at all, no. which I thought was kind of interesting. It doesn't no. morally distinguish between them. Yeah, at all. It really doesn't. They don't, they don't say, well, you know, she's the she's the tyrant here. She's the one sending them glibly to their deaths. She's the one who wants to, you know, wipe out this other species to get them off the planet. Right. They're just bred and conditioned to obey. There's no sympathy for them from anyone. And yet, weirdly enough, and this is another plot hole, I think, I'm, because I'm not sure what to make of this. It's in the televised version too. Maga bases her hostility towards the Rills on the supposed killing of one yeah. of her soldiers. Yes. Except she's the one who does it. And it sounds like she went back to her soldiers and said, oh, they killed her. We need to take them out. It's like, one, why should she have to justify that to mm. these mindless soldiers? True. She should just be able to do it. Yeah. And two, why, why do it? Why do it at all? Why kill the soldier? Why have any of this going on it just seems like a means to an end that doesn't really get to the end where it's supposed to get it's yeah. just drama for drama's sake well there's there are a lot of interesting splits and dichotomies on this but in terms of mirror images 
you have the Rill, who are the biological creatures, and the Chumblies, who are their robots, mm. who are a sort of who are sort of created servants as well on one side, oh, yeah. and then you yeah. have Maga, who's this sort of biologically natural-born individual, if you will, on the Draven side, and then we have these uh, military slave clones whom they bred uh, to serve them. Right. But the Doctor and Stephen and Vicky all see clearly the distinction between the Chumblies and the biological krill. <laughs> the krill? The, the rill. rill. Yeah. <laughs> They're delicious. <laughs> Whereas, they, uh, Whereas they don't seem to make that distinction between Maga and her well, close soldiers. There is a scene with, I feel like it's with Stephen and one of the Dravans where he tries to tell her, like, hey, you have a chance to, like, leave that crazy bitch mm-hmm. uh, and think for yourself yes, yes. and, you know, not be stuck here. They're trying to help you guys, and she's not listening. Yeah. And the Dravan's just like, no, this yeah. is my order. I have to yeah. follow it. Do you feel like he actually meant it, though, or does it seem half-hearted to you? I feel like... His animosity is towards Maga. It's not necessarily towards the the numbered Dravans. Right, right. Um, I feel like that was a legitimate, like offering of hey, like I mean, escape attempt, but yeah. right. It's still an escape yeah. attempt, but it's it's like you know you're not bound by her because you're not there with her. Right. You're not in the same room with her to listen to her orders. Mm-hmm. You're stuck on this planet just as much as we are. Do you want to get off of it, or do you want to die here? Yes. So, I feel like, yeah, there should be some sympathy for them, but that scene illustrates that they he, he had sympathy, and she didn't want it. Right. So, it's like, you know, how do you... I don't, you can lead a horse to water, but how do you make a drink? I don't you can show it. someone, this is good for you, but if they don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Fake news. You mean it's <laughs> manga? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah exactly. it's this idea of brainwashing yes. people. Well, you literally have a fake news kind of gag in there. Yeah. Manga is saying we don't listen to the robots. All they, all they do is bring us lies yes. and we drive them away. Yeah. I thought that was exactly. Timely. It's that way. same idea which, of. Speaking of which, that's the other plot hole that I was trying to think of. Thank you. Manga says, "Oh, we don't listen to them because they bring us fake news, so they know how to talk to them." I think maybe she knows that they will give up her secret that she actually killed. Oh, okay, but then and we're she back doesn't to, want the rest of them to know. But then it. we're back to that plot hole. Yeah, and we have be. to wonder why it is that you know she specifically has such hatred against the Rills because I I said in my notes that given how many horrible things these women say about the Rills, it's surprising they don't accuse them of you know they say they're ugly that they smell that they do terrible things that they for probably lazy. I'm, I'm surprised she doesn't accuse them of being very bad musicians. Well, <laughs> because then you could then at least they could say there's lazy music in the rills. I thought yeah. she was just covering her own mistakes. Yeah, it's all uh, lies. It's all a smokescreen. It's all a diversion. It's when, all when she like... gets back home. They need to all have the same story to tell mm-hmm. about why they came to be stranded on the planet and how they yeah, got their way. Yeah, I guess. I guess, but is there going to be that amount? I guess that is it. It's accountability, isn't it? Because right. she does talk about her superior. 
and going well, back home to this corrupt well, bureaucracy where people are just waiting for her to mess up. Yeah. Well, and imagine what she did to all of her numbered slaves. Oh, yeah. You messed up. She, you know, yeah. Stephen hears her in the other room yelling and screaming at them what she's going to do to them. Yeah. She hears them hears them whimpering and one through of them the wall. fails to do something and she asks the doctor to kill her because that's what's going to happen anyway. Right. Yes. So you can only imagine what would happen. And to being sympathetic, he calls her an idiot yes. and a silly girl. Right. Way to so go, Doc. What's going to happen to Maga when she gets back to this society? She's one of the elite, and she messed up. Oh, yeah, that's a point. Also, come to think of it, we we do hear a little bit about slave revolts going on at home all the time. It's implied to be the men are revolting, but it's also probably these cloned women. Yeah. I thought that that entire premise was incredibly thin, because she gives this monologue about how men are useless, they're they're parasites, all they do is eat, so why have them around? And then we created a clone slave race who presumably doesn't eat to do our work? Like, well, why don't you just subjugate? They eat pills. They eat diet pills. That's how they keep their slim figures, they eat diet pills. It was not a very convincing And she eats nothing but salads. Alright, so the food. (laughs) Interesting switch here with Stephen versus Vicky on the food. Yeah. Vicky is offered the officer's food, if you will, Maga's food, the sort of fancy salad of the aristocrats. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And she turns it down, uh, not on moral uh, grounds, because she thinks it looks gross, and she eats the slave food. And this is considered shocking to the Dravins. Steve is offered the slave food, and he turns his nose up at it and says that he wants some of the food of the elite. I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at their characters. Especially when one half of that scene occurs on screen and the other doesn't. Mm, which one's on screen? Uh, the Stephen part. Mm. The part with Vicky isn't. Mm. Oh wait, I might, I might have that wrong, but one of them is missing. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, there's the mirror to that scene, and I caught that too, and I was like, what is he doing here? Is he saying that Stephen is trying to assert his male privilege and say, I want what the elite are having, and Vicky is more sympathetic with the oppressed? Which I thought was kind of the perspective, although she she doesn't really make much of an attempt at all to connect no. with the slave clones. She, can, she writes them off, and it, in the story it indicates it's appropriate. She wouldn't be, they're not able to receive new information right. from anyone other than MAGA, but I think it was more, yeah, different experience of life. She didn't want to identify with MAGA, and I'm not crazy about how this book insists on making Stephen such an asshole, because <laughs> I think there's a lot to like about the dynamic that they set up with him and Vicky, where, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's a you know, good plot device to pair off characters, and so you had, um, Barbara and Ian, who were a natural pair because they were teachers from the same school, about the same age, and they had a lot of seniority over Vicky because they'd been on the ship longer, plus they were older, etc. And now Vicky has, you know, sort of a friend to play with, if you will, who has, you know, more aerospace experience, but less experience on the TARDIS. And they have a nice sort of bickering back and forth parody, and they keep making him a jerk in a way that seems completely unnecessary and, yeah. and disappointing. And that doesn't that doesn't keep happening. Mm. Luckily, it, it's this mm. book. Even though this book also had some nice moments for he and the Doctor, but not just abrasive. I think that's actually totally fine and yeah, works yeah. when he's just a smart ass and Vicky's a smart ass, and they both get as well as they get. But the thing with the food makes him. Cast him in a very unpleasant light. I can see that. 
and there are two or three items like that in the book where, I, once again, I, I, I don't didn't really like the direction he was taking the character. I think that was one of the things that kind of made me feel like it took a misstep in that idea of the like the phenol race scenario because mm-hmm. um, it was. I, I noticed like, oh, okay, one time Vicky's the hostage and they leave with the Drobins, and one time mm-hmm. Steven's the hostage and they leave with the Drobins, and it's like, all right, yeah. let's let's play a little bit with how they're going to treat their hostages. One's yeah. male, one's female. Um, so that was where it was like, okay, are they going there? Not quite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the way that the going there isn't on the Drobin's part, it's on Steve's part. Yeah. And he is by far the most intensely emotional person yeah. in the entire <laughs> book. Even more than Maga, and she's pretty intense, oh. but... Like, the incandescent rage moment here is when he, or it says this is apparently the scene that emasculated him, he felt, on mm-hmm. screen. So he has just had a, a run at MAGA and narrowly won the fight right. here in the book. Which he narrowly loses on the screen. And she essentially says, you know, I don't care, you're going to help us anyway. I don't care if you just won this physical fight. All right, so place no bet, Stephen said, his brain still in a turmoil of rage. He knew he hated the woman, he knew it was not just because she had proven so strong, but he really disliked her and the temptation to do her serious injury was almost irresistible. If he yielded to it, he would feel a lot better. But not later, he reminded himself, not later. Then would come the misgivings, the remorse. Never before in his life had he fought a woman. It was not an experience he would choose to repeat. Yet his finger still still itched on the trigger. He viewed the supine maga and said very gently, the next time we run across each other, step aside. My good breeding is leaving me. And... Another line that's not on the screen. Yes. And... Alright, so going back to Maga and our present world here. The way this works in his mind is he is stronger than she is. He can beat her in a fight. Mm-hmm. He could harm or kill her at any time. He doesn't because he's too much of a gentleman. That's not how the story goes. He wins this fight. Later, he's a prisoner. He tries to talk his way out of it. He tries to fight his way out of it. He can't do it. Mm -hmm. But he has to have this position in his mind that he is just being courtly by not out-talking or overcoming these women. And he can't. There's many of them. There's one of him. Mm -hmm. And just logistically, he's not the superior in this situation. And it's weird, too, because we also get a uh, description earlier in the book where Stephen says what he thinks. He was far from used to women having such an attitude. He preferred the old-fashioned type, gentle, loving, fond of homely things. The warlike variety did not win him over at all. A couple problems with this. One, Stephen is from the 24th, 25th, 26th, 27th century. (laughs) Yes, but there's a 50s in every century. Yes, of course. And two... Eventually, he is going to be paired with a companion who is essentially a cold-blooded killing soldier. I thought that that was either a criticism of him or it was a point we were going to see him grow from. Yeah. Because, like I said, his incredibly shallow first response to, hey, baby, aren't you hot to a woman pulling a laser... uh, rifle at him, and then that later (laughs) self-consciously sexist sentiment on his part uh, seems almost impossible to publish in the 80s without some kind of tongue-in-cheek or plan to redeem him. (laughs) But here's what gave me pause. Um, There is something very, very similar from the Rill at 
the end of the book. God, yes, what it says about female rules. Yes. Well, oh, I could not even get into that. Actually, that's in the Gnostic bit. But, oh, yeah. Um, all right, so the real echo Stephen's con- they actually echo Stephen's contemplation of how they love nothing more than to do her in, but a practice restraint. All right, so one of the real says to Maga uh, towards the end, and now they're completely physically in control of the situation until now, and the implication is they have been in some way the entire time. Um, until now, we have spared you, even though you attacked us repeatedly. Now our patience is all at an end, and we have determined to deal severely with any further attempts on your part. Heed our warning and heed it well. It is you who will pay the consequences of any breach of this ruling. And he basically sends her to her room. Go back to your ship. You yeah. can't come back until we say so. And you know, the real are the wise species here. And that made me wonder if it, maybe it was the author's position. The idea that, going back to the modern world, that some men have that, Feminism is tolerated in modern society, but could be crushed at any time. Yeah. It's, it's indulged by white knights, etc., and that all the advances of feminism are, are, are merely tinker toys that are allowed the girls right now while it's convenient, but at any time it could be taken away. I was really surprised that the real also had that attitude towards yeah. her. And in terms of the plot, either one of those on its own wouldn't have been alar- as alarming. Mm-hmm. It, you know, either Steve's having Stephen's having this intense emotional reaction to yeah, he won the fight, but just barely. He's really right. angry. He had to have the fight at all. Right. Or just the real saying, "Look, we have tried everything to communicate with you and to help you. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, you've got to stop." Yes. But. To have them so similar together, I thought, was troubling. Oh, yeah. And I think something I didn't address earlier, um, when we were talking about the Doctor thinking of the, um, the Dravins as being all stupid and not having being as um, technologically advanced at all. And he's met far stupider species yes. than the other books. Yes, and it almost, it almost, there's almost that undertone of, well, it's a dominant race of women. Yes. Of course yes. their technology is going to be lesser. As yeah. Like, it's yes. not stated, but it might as well. Be. Well, but it's it's several. There are several statements with that undertone. It's not yes. one or two throwaway. Yeah, comments. and that's the problematic thing. It's about like oh, so much yeah. for their lady scientists. Yeah. Oh point. yes. Yeah. He does. Yeah. He does, and it's yeah. like fucking hell. Um, have either of you? And this is continuing the point. Have either of you seen the? Uh, I know you have the Star Trek Next Generation episode Angel One. To describe the first season. It's a female dominated society. The men in the society are the servants and they're yeah. very feminized. That's what I was talking about where like, they send Riker to rescue yes. the other Starfleet officers. And he's officers. on this frilly yes. thing that shows yes. off his hairy chest. So, and he says at the end, what's going on in your society isn't revolution, it's evolution yes. of a relationship between And it's women. embarrassing to say this, but this is the thing that I don't like about this book. Even in that story, the world building was better. Yeah. than what we get here, because the Dravins are just, they kill men, they they clone a slave race that but happens to be in a way that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, and, and we hear... It's a not little... compelling because it doesn't make any sense. Right, right. It's and not we... like, ooh, that's like this actual situation in the world. It's yeah, not... why are they going out to conquer? Hell knows. <laughs> why are they women in the first place? Here's the interesting thing. That is down to Verity Lambert, the previous producer first female producer of the show. The Draven were originally male. And she said, you know what would be interesting? Let's make them all women. As a result of that decision, William Ems and the BBC co-own the Dravens. 
because Verity Lambert, as a uh, employee of the BBC, came up with the idea. So it was arguably the most feminist producer to ever <laughs> produce Doctor Who, mm. who came up with this idea of having an all-female race to do this with, and there's just nothing actually positively feminist about it. So in terms of backstage drama, is any of this kind of a shot at her, do you think? I don't know. No, it isn't. And I know this for a fact. I know this for a fact because when I was watching this panel last night, and they were all talking about Verity Lambert having, this is the last last thing she had any fingerprints on, first story that John Wiles is full producer on, they adored Verity Lambert. They had the most respect for her and said, um, That's good, because that would have been very ugly. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, John Wiles said, I, I never wanted to be a producer. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a script editor. And I was kind of forced into it by the higher-ups. I could never be the producer that Verity Lambert was. She would walk into a room, uh, the production offices at the BBC, and suddenly, utter silence. Hmm. You could hear a pin drop. Everyone respected her so much, and they were terrified of her. And it's like... And, at the time, I think Verity Lambert was about 28 years old. Mm, wow. She was amazing. That is extraordinary. Yeah, she, and she went on to even bigger and better things, obviously. But the fact that we get this, and the world building is so lackadaisical and lazy, and the rills are kind of yeah, interesting in their own way, but not at the same time. I think the things that are almost certainly not in the episode were interesting. Yeah. The, 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 the real... Soliloquy, maybe at the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. Of his thoughts. All right. So, to quote Jog the Blog's excellent series of posts on Jack Chick from about ten years ago, we're gonna hook this shit together like Final Crisis. And he was referring to Jack Chick's conspiracy theory, theories about the Jesuits and how they assassinated Lincoln and oh, yeah. created communism. Anyway, all right. So, I don't think that he's trying to talk about gender so much as he's setting up a Gnostic duality, but Gnosticism is almost inherent, always inherently misogynistic, even when it's trying hard not to be. Yes, yes, yes. So the Star Trek way of doing this would be to posit the Klingons versus the Vulcans. And the Vulcans are intellectual and restrained and have this life of the mind and pursue peace, whereas the Klingons just want war and sex and wine. Mm-hmm. And we don't have quite as extreme an embodiment of that here. Of course, the uncomfortable thing on there was always that the Vulcans were so white that they were actually kind of greenish, yes. and the Klingons were black. And then, obviously, obviously later the Klingons were fleshed out to be much more interesting than that, and the Vulcans to were as well. But to the original, say nothing of the Ferengi and the Jews. Yeah, oh goodness, yes. Once <laughs> you see that, you can't unsee it. I know the original Klingons were white actors, etc. Yeah. But, but that sort of concept of these two species of Vulcans and the Klingon who represented these two polarities of human nature to Mm. sort of pull the humans back and forth between. So we've got the Rill who, when they are internally thinking, go on and on, not just about so much about peace Mm -hmm. and restraint. They do talk about restraint more than peace, but about this quest for knowledge and life of the mind. And they are exploring the galaxy to expand their knowledge. Mm-hmm. while the Dravans are exploring it for ambition. Yeah. And even though they, the, uh, the, the drones, the numbered Dravans, are shown as having no ambition, that's clearly not the case with the organic elites. They have all kinds of petty infights and Far politics and basically are driven by emotions of ambition, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, he had to make the um, 
the masculine and uh, race, you know, the intellectuals and the feminines, the emotional, but it's not the gender stereotypes of emotion, because I still yes. say that Steve's the most emotional person in the entire oh, story, and there, then Maga is the second one. Yeah. So they're not, like, for example, I love that she, uh, the, the classic trope would be that Maga would fall for Stephen, and that, there's nothing, anything like that no, in here. No, Because I thought wonderfully refreshing. Yes, well, it would have been so easy to do. Um, so, <laughs> I apologize for what I'm about to say. The last verse of the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Thrown <laughs> oh, okay. out the room here. All right, here we go. <laughs> so actually say something like, every female must make herself male if she is to ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. So there's this presentation of the real as a race that has males and females. The implication is that all the ones that we see are male, but there's really just one main one that they interact with. Right, right. And when he discusses gender, I don't think it's quite the slam that it seems. Okay. So he says, like, yes, there is mating, but really doesn't matter which male happens to be wandering by to inseminate. Even the females make a big show of being picky and caring which one it is. Yeah. Really not. And at first I'm like, okay, that's incredibly gross. Um, but I think he's presenting an ideal of more of a neuter society to talk about, well, the female oh. skulls are a little different. I do envy the humans. They're great, sleek, portable heads. Ours are kind of heavy and clunky. Mm -hmm. But his implication is it's a society that doesn't have much sex difference in it. Right, right. Whereas the Dravins have this extreme sex divide where they are, there's like a male genocide. You hear about it on Twitter, but they're actually doing it. <laughs> you know, they're cloning only females. And I think it's supposed to be not so much a male-female dichotomy as a mostly neuter sexual only for um, logistical purposes yes. society versus yeah. a society that is... Not that is extreme in its emphasis on sex and gender, and extreme in its emphasis on hierarchy. Right. So the Dravans have a slave race, and then among the organics, they have extremely strict bickery hierarchy, mm -hmm. and the real refer to having a relatively egalitarian society. And, and that just kind of feeds into the idea of it yeah. being about age and being about these species that have lived long enough to where they have evolved enough to not need petty bickering and bullshit to right. have their genetics passed on to the next, you know, generation. And, and so the doctor isn't even at the Rills point. No, yet. he, yeah. he, he still, still cares about his appearance. Yeah, he's yes. he's more advanced, but it's still not even to I that. I don't think it's even his appearance, it's his experience of trying to run away from enemies in this plodding body. We talk yeah. about, yes. you know, the wheezing lungs and, and we, he wants Steve's young, hot body. He wants to walk around comfortably and be yeah. able to do physically whatever he needs to do without stopping and thinking about, you know, taking his insulin or having to hit a box. I'm exaggerating a bit, <laughs> yeah. but I think he gets towards the end that Stephen is actually much closer to the Draven and where he is in his perspectives yeah. and that the younger body is not worth that. Sure. Yeah. You know, you you can trade your intellect for uh, physical attributes, but it's like, what's what's going to save you in the end? Yeah. The doctor ultimately always depends on his brain to get him out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it, I, I still feel like, yeah, a lot of what we're dealing with is this idea of uh, progress mm -hmm. <laughs> versus a uh, society that has progressed to a certain point. And it's keep like you know keeps hammering away at this bad idea, mm -hmm. and, and they're saying no, you guys, 
no, this this isn't the way that you do anything to extend your life in the universe and in the, the greater scheme of things this is only going to destroy you right. yeah. um you know that the the scene talking about how they experience time mm -hmm. is, is a good example of that and even the story itself given that they only have two dawns until the planet explodes it's uh yeah it's all it's all about and and kind of uh, gnosticism uh, the reels make me think of uh, buddhism in a yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. And, and Zen. Yeah. The idea of yeah. that you experience everything now in one moment, but you're also experiencing everything. Yeah. Right. All yeah. and it's just like this idea of processing it mm -hmm. all. There's this bit where the real is talking about to the doctor rather wearily about time. He says, yeah. We live in a different time scale to you. To us your movements look like those of insects jerking this way and that. Yeah, twitching. Yes. yes. <laughs> for no reason at all. Yeah, stay yes. still for your mother. <laughs> when you come, come into this chamber, you came in like gusts of winds. And as I look at you, you're twitching, yes, <laughs> in a way that I would find exhaustion. Not even your eyes remain still. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the Robins are just a constant flurry of patrols and beating people and activity and opening fire in a way that doesn't even cause any damage on the enemies. Yeah. And the, and the reels almost in a way talk about... Uh, their experience of life being uh, not like a vacation, but very just laid back, like yeah. chill out. They have the robots do the busy work. Right, like we, we have come to a point to where we have the technology, and this is something I bitch about in the real world, we have the technology to live comfortably without fighting with each other. Yes. Why are we continually yes. fighting with they each other? They have abundance. They have a ship that could take everybody out right. of there. They've got the oxygen chamber, the ammonia yeah. chamber. Just stop shooting on me and get on the ship. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and, and so it's, yeah, it's like we, we have come to a point of realizing that we can get so much more out of our existence yeah. in the universe if we just think about things and realize that we can come to conclusions without having to fight yes um yeah yeah and yet that's not going to happen with the drabins especially no. when manga thinks of the doctor as something which had slothfully emerged from between the dried pages of time mm. oh my god oh, why can't we have pros like this all the time <laughs> honestly next time we will we'll have donald cotton yeah. again because, oh my god, that's going to be marvelous. But So if this is a Gnostic duality to <laughs> sorry, drive in like a truck for hopefully the last time okay. here. And the Dravins are essentially the physical. Mm -hmm. And the Rills are essentially either the spiritual and more in this case the mental life of the mind. Right. Rather than a like a mind spirit dichotomy. Yeah. So if they are physically embodying these things, alright, so Mog has pulled a gun on the doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the sphere could have been sliced with a knife. Vicky and Stephen looked on intense alarm as the doctor eyed the weapon and the woman holding it. He cared for neither. In fact, his indifference was turning to active dislike. Yes. Here he was pursuing his normal life of scientific inquiry and suddenly finding himself being dragooned into what bore all the working markings of an all-out war. It was all too much. Why, oh why, did these things keep happening to him? Assuming there was a god, he seemed to look upon the doctor with an ironic eye. Benevolence would make a nice change, a spell of peace and quiet somewhere with nothing at all happening and no one threatening his tranquility of mind. And he had to admit that for himself, 
had to admit that for himself. He was a serene person, not given to such trivial emotions as impatience and anger, which is we've seen contradicted in this book and in each of the others as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Indeed, so he's still always an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Indeed, it sometimes crossed his mind that he could be taken as a model for all life forms to shape themselves upon. Mm-hmm. They would be the beneficiaries. So why was this stupid woman pointing this ridiculous weapon at him? So he feels <laughs> like he's looking at, you know, the trigger woman here. He's rejecting this, kind of, this violence and life of conquest and ambition and activity, thinking about the life of m- the mind and pursuit of knowledge like the real. Right. And yet we see even in his own unreliable statements here, he's not remotely close to that. No. The very fact that he thinks that he is shows that he isn't. Yeah, and that's because, as we find out later, the Doctor is still quite young at this yeah. point. But he doesn't talk further about wanting a hot young body to run around in. No, no, and it's... Because what's he going to do? Use it to fight people, use it to run away, use it to run towards because other conflicts. always ends up in the conflict situation. I'm looking for something specific. Um, Clausewitz. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that there was a mention of, I believe it was Claude von Clausewitz. Um, the doctor says something about somebody having a Clausewitz moment, and I think it may very well be Magid that he's referring to, but it might also be the real. And I put it in my notes, I looked it up on Wikipedia today, and I thought it was very interesting to have this one-off of the person who is famed for having said... War is simply a continuation of politics. It's like the fourth to last page. Fourth to last page? Yeah. Okay. I'm searching it in my PDF. Um, Which is the opposite of what you learn in Poli-Sci, that politics are supposed to be a substitute or alternative to violence. Yes, Clausewitz actually thought the opposite. And he was the one that coin the idea of eternal war, which is another thing that comes up in this, and we haven't really unpacked that the Draven probably Dravens probably would fight even if they didn't have to. Yeah. What's the line for it, Don? Um it's a paragraph starts but but she had noticed that now all the robots were grouped together with no regard for their flanks. It could be that the rills were not sufficiently experienced in fighting to know that however superior in armament their machines uh, should keep should be kept well spaced out. Her mind gnawed at the problem as though she were a general pondering his Klausowitz in order to find a way out, which in fact she was. <laughs> which is a historical reference that I I only looked up enough about him to find that out. I didn't find out anything else, unfortunately. But just the fact that we're talking about Gnosticism and Klausowitz and talking about... <sighs> Who thought that we were going to be talking about all of this with a book like this? I sure as hell did. No. I wasn't expecting it when I started reading it. Yeah. Nor was I. Nor was I. And <laughs> I feel somewhat ashamed of that. Um, let me ask you a quick question. And then we'll go on to, unless we have other things that we have to discuss, we probably should start wrapping up. Um, was the ending too abrupt for you? Did there need to be a TARDIS scene after the explosion of the planet? No. No? The entire book was building towards the image of the exploding planet, and it played out exactly the way it was predicted to. Okay, good. So it worked for you. Yeah. I didn't I didn't see a need for there to be any anything after that. Okay. The only reason I think it odd is because there is a scene 
There is a scene. There is a scene, of course. Yes, of course there's a scene because of the way that this is set up. Um, And this is going to lead into some news that I have for both of you and for listeners at home as well. Tony is pregnant. Yeah, I sure am. I sure am. What did I get out of this move? Nothing but a pregnancy. Um, Actually, it's just gas. Um, Where was I going with this? Okay, the scene after, the scene at the end of the story, Vicky hurts her ankle. Because that's what the female companion do. She hurts she, her she ankle. She's wearing braces or something. I, I guess else. running towards the yes. ship, she hurts her ankle. They need to stretch before they leave the TARDIS. Yes. Like yes. And they're st- st- sitting in the TARDIS and saying, you know, we need to go find a quiet place. We really do. Because all this blowing up shit, ridiculous. And Vicky looks up at the screen and she sees a planet on the screen. She says, I wonder what's happening there. And the doctor says, yes, I wonder that too. And we cut to it. And we get the first scene of the next episode. And I use that deliberately. Next episode, not story, because the story is one episode long. It's okay. a prequel to the 12 part Dalek story that follows the Mythmakers. And it's called Mission to the Unknown. And it's the first scene of Mission to the Unknown, which is, to date, the only completely doctorless story ever in the series history. The Doctor does not appear. The regulars do not appear. We will not get to experience it until the Daleks Master Plan Volumes 1 and 2 because John Peel puts that story at the very beginning of that novelization. So it's actually 13 parts. We get the Mythmakers next. We will be discussing the two-volume Daleks Master Plan novelization at Chicago TARDIS 2017. I just got the news today that we will ah. be we will be recording that episode live at Chicago TARDIS. I don't know when yet. It will either be on the Friday or the Saturday of that weekend, which is just happens to be Thanksgiving weekend too. But uh, we will be doing it there. So if anyone wants to come and see us, and please come and see us, please come laugh <laughs> at us, please come cheer. Please come cry. Come see Dalton's shaven face. Yeah, well, well, Dalton won't be there, unfortunately. I'll be at a wedding. He'll be at a wedding. So it'll be you, me, and Trey makes three. Mm. And Trey is three. (laughs) I just thought of that. But yeah, uh, Trey Corte will be with us. I hope. That's the plan. Allison says that she might, and I hope that's a very strong yes. yes. Let's say run us off with brooms when they see us coming. Yeah, and I'll I'll be there because (laughs) I kind of have to be. But yes, so that's something to look forward to in November, that weekend, which means that we'll probably, I don't know if we're doing just that episode in November or whether we're doing some sort of special lead-in episode. I know we're doing a special Halloween episode. I'll tell you about that at the end of the Mythmakers one next time. But, last thoughts. Uh, should we, last thoughts or should we do the good reads thing? Uh... Yeah, either one. Let's do the good The average, let's talk, let's, as we always do, my paragraph is missing. My Goodreads paragraph is missing. Your paragraph? Oh, no. Yes, as we always do, I'm going to try to do it from memory, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com, where we look at other people's opinions of these stories that we have been reading. If you would like to have your opinion read on the air, yada, 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 yada. The average rating for this story for this book, rather, out of five stars, is 3.19, which is... very specific. Yeah, it is, and it's lower than the last two. Here's some sample reviews, and I 
chose three new people. FR gives it only one star. FR one star. Saying... <laughs> FR said for fuck right off. I guess so. <laughs> it's a novelization of a kid's science fiction show of the 1960s done with a minimum of style and finesse and in a distinctly workmanlike fashion. It's a real shame, as the actual TV show has long been wiped from existence, and so a novelization would be one of the best ways to appreciate it. Written 20 years after broadcast, it's therefore irritating that Ems has done so little to develop his own story, that he didn't stop to realize that most people reading this wouldn't be kids under the age of 10, and that he didn't show a little more ambition than just quickly slapping a screenplay into prose and then picking up his check. As what we have here is far from inspired, a particularly gruesome example of his lack of care is the fact that the henchwomen aren't even given names, simply labeled 1, 2, and 3. You might get away with that when three recognizably different actresses are playing them, but in book form, it just looks unspeakably lazy. What makes it even more galling is that there is stuff in the book about the first Doctor coming to the end of his life and awaiting regeneration, as well as having two hearts. Neither detail would have been hinted at in the story when the TV version was broadcast. Huh. It's truly annoying that Ams felt the need to add that window dressing, but saw no need to add great, the greater depth his story so obviously needed. He read a very different book that, than we did. That person was extremely drunk when reading this book, or possibly asleep. He's not done. Oh, it's not done. There's, <laughs> the story originated in the 1960s, and in its portrayal of beautiful women who have moved past men, and now brainlessly follow orders while dismissing any creatures who aren't like them, one can see a kick in the shins to feminism. Indeed, reading this one, reading this, one is surprised that the term feminazi was still a couple of years away from being coined. Surely, if Ems had thought of that in relation to Galaxy 4, he'd have been right proud of himself. Ooh, that person actually doesn't understand the mechanics of the plot, I think. No, I don't think so either. Michael, whom we also have not heard from before, gives it three stars. And he says this if I can scroll up to it. While a lot of Doctor Who fans would love to see Marco Polo or the Tenth Planet return to the archives, I have to admit part of me would like the chance to see the long-lost Season 3 premiere story, Galaxy 4. By the way, this is the opening of Season 3. But it was filmed at the end of Season 2, right after Time Meddler. A lot of that credit goes to fond memories of this novelization that I read during my formative days as a Doctor Who fan. It's not necessarily the best first Doctor story, but William M's adaptation of his story works well on the printed page, Free of budget limitations, my imagination ran wild. I'm excited that an episode of this long-lost story has been recovered. While I'm sure it can never live up to the images in my mind from the original novel and BBC Audio release of the story, I still can't help but be a little, ex a bit excited to finally see it. Whenever the BBC sees fit to put it on DVD, well, I'd be waiting a while. Leela 42, three stars. Worthwhile book for someone who wants to hear more. Uh, wants more of the first Doctor. Vicky and Stephen, as it's easy to hear her voices, Stephen even gets in one of his zingers. But once you grasp the situation, the story itself is absolutely by the numbers. The writing of the book is uneven, at times very good. At other times, repetitive, preachy, and in a few cases, badly connected. There are also some grammatical errors that I didn't point out, but I was like, whoa. Um, themes are repeated a lot, pointing up the difficulty of novelizing, novelizing a serial adventure show. And finally... My favorite review, the briefest three-star review I've ever seen, comes from Ian Hamilton, who wrote, Chumbly's Check, Dravin's Check, Ugly but Misunderstood Aliens Named After a Seaside Resort Town and Community in Degmanshire, Check. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's all you need. 
Indeed. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what do you give Galaxy 4? I'm going with the, the last three reviews. I, I was conflicted earlier. I was feeling a, a two, but now I'm feeling a three. Okay. Just, we yeah. won you over, did we? Uh, I feel like some of the themes, some of the things that it talks about, I enjoyed. Um, yeah, some of the, the bigger, more philosophical aspects of it. Okay. Um, yeah. Little, uh, I think the first review got it whenever they were saying that, uh, it's meant for children, but children aren't reading it. No. Necessarily. So, um, I enjoy that. But, you know, having, having something a little more to chew on is, is good. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. As, as a child, I would have been completely bewildered and bored <laughs> yeah. by this book. Yeah, it's actually yeah. hard for me to imagine anyone under 13 reading this. And I think I was. Mm. Go ahead. I am really torn between a .5 and a 3.5. Like, <laughs> there's a difference between some of the things being attempted and the loveliness of some of the passages about this sort of physical, mental dichotomy and how it you know, manifests itself in the doctor's existence mm -hmm. versus some of just the lazy offhanded misogyny that doesn't really even develop the theme of gender in there. I yeah. am all over the place on this in the same way that the book is. Right. Uh, so I'll you know, leave you with this thought from Vicky before I give a number. Uh, she was in no mood to communicate with the dead. For all she knew, she was about to join them anyway, so to contact them now would have been superfluous. Um, <laughs> God, I think I'm going to go... Anything seems too much or too little. I think I'm going to go with a two, which is mediocre. And it's not a mediocre book. It's got some really great parts and some really terrible parts. Yeah, it and, averages out to that. Yeah, one. so I'll go with a two. I could see that. And I feel bad about it. Yeah, <laughs> and I, as I said at the top of the show, I feel bad that I poisoned the well because I thought it was going to be every bit as bad as that. And boring because I remembered... I don't remember if I read this as a teenager. If I did, I skimmed through it. I probably hated this book as a teenager. Now, I I would reread this because yeah. it has some really just gorgeous prose in it, some beautiful moments, and some horrible world building, some yeah. terrible gender relations. Yeah. And yet, it's surprising to have such a low-regarded story produce a book with so many surprises such quality of prose, and this absolutely unique take on the Doctor. We are not going to see the Doctor treated like that again. Mm. Or if we do, it's going to be a long time down the road. Mm. No other writer is going to be quite that, you know, radical with the way they produce mm. the Doctor. I, I really wish we could have more of this sort of the Hartnell Doctor. And maybe, just maybe, since Big Finish just announced that uh, David Bradley, who's playing the first Doctor in the Christmas special, and who played him in the, the anniversary tele-movie we watched in Adventure in Time and Space mm -hmm. for the 50th. They've gotten that cast together, and they're going to do a set of audio dramas mm -hmm. with the first Doctor, Ian, Vic, uh, Ian Barbara, mm -hmm. and Susan, as what? played by those actors. I'm so looking forward to that. Are they doing new stories? Yeah. Oh, wow. They're doing new stories, and that will be lovely if they can do this sort of thing with it, but maybe do it better. Yeah. So I gave this, I feel weird giving this a three. It, it feels, yeah, like I should be really slamming it for the things it's not yeah. doing well. 
and that I'm overpraising it for the things it is doing well, but the things it's doing well, it's doing really, really well. You come to both praise it and bury it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when it was good, it was very, very good, and when it was bad, it was <laughs> horrid. <laughs> and boy, howdy, was it horrid. Yes. It has gotten under my skin, though, in a way that most of them have not. Yeah, me too. Yeah. This is what I'm going to remember. And I'm going to remember it for good reasons, actually, unlike, you know, Planet of Giant Dicks or Crusades or anything like that. So, thank you guys, and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we travel back to the Myth Makers, and if you want to know what happened to them in that next televised episode, <laughs> you'll just have to come find out. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. You can still visit our eternally pristine subreddit <laughs> at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch the videos of our first 12, nay, 13 episodes at YouTube, which is forward slash user forward slash umperdalek forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter at DWTargetBC. Subscribe to us at the podcast of your choice. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn. If all else fails, you email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.